Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Evolve Move Play podcast. This week, our guest is Marla Fiskin. Marla Fiskin is an amazing dancer, pole dancer, movement teacher, actor. She's been in the dance industry, in the fitness industry for over 20 years. She's danced for major stars like Nelly. She has won world championships in pole dancing, taught all over the world. And she's been a friend of mine since uh, 2013 and someone who I really love to go to and talk with about the world of dance and movement culture. She was an amazing presenter at our Body Movement Summit last year, and just someone who I really appreciate and can't get enough of, and I I think you guys are gonna get so much out of this conversation. Uh, This was our first live podcast that we streamed on YouTube. If you're interested in being able to uh, join us and engage in question and answers, make sure to sign up for our podcast plus, the link is in the description. And um, yeah, without further ado, enjoy my conversation, the amazing Marla Fiskin. Marla, welcome. It's uh, wonderful to have you. First live podcast, so this should be a lot of fun. I like being experimental. Very good, very good. So I, um, I, uh, I always think it's fun to remind people of how you and I met, which is a funny story. So uh, I taught a workshop for Apex Movement. Um, and you were also teaching a workshop for Apex Movement, I believe, same week. Possibly. The pole dance studio used to be located inside of the parkour gym. So that's probably how that came about. Okay, so I remember that. And then uh, we were both invited to stay and do the Apex Movement uh, teacher certification. Um, and as part of that, you, you got everybody twerking, which was, uh, I think, I'm, I don't know, maybe that's a precedent in the parkour community. The, uh, the first twerking warm-up for, uh, for parkour athletes as part of a parkour certification. Yeah, I, I was asked, hey, can you get the group warm however you want? And for me, uh, n- nothing, nothing gets people started for <laughs> the day quite like landing in your pelvis. So yeah, it was a group of right 30, 30 men and um, for many of them, maybe it seemed like the first time ever that I had them to get, get in a squat and do pelvic isolations, but uh, it was a great hit. It was. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. Great. So I was remembering that I was just really in the beginning formation of what Evolve Move Play was around that time. And I had dug deep into the martial arts and the parkour, I did gymnastics and strength training, and I was looking at kind of the the evolutionary origins, the cross-cultural lens on, on human movement. And the one area that felt like a big missing piece for me to understand was dance. And so I reached out to you and uh, to our friend Shira Yazid and sort of like 
you guys were my my experts on trying to understand dance so that I could um, bring it into the conceptualization of involvement play. And I, I remember when I reached out to you and I was like, you know, you basically said I was already a dancer. And Shira said the same thing. So <clears throat> that was not my self-conception, right? I thought of myself as a pretty big, awkward, funky mover. Um, someone very much without rhythm had been accused of being extraordinarily white multiple times in my, my, my life. And so I was curious if we could start there. Like, why is it that you told me when I first came to speak to you about dance that I was already a dancer? Because the belief that you are not a dancer is the biggest impediment to you dancing. Mm -hmm. Um, To, to the, the distinction of what to be dancing or what is dance and what is not dance, I tend to discourage people from even going there or qualifying, I am a dancer, I am not a dancer, and rather looking at the things that we already are doing and starting to experience it as a dancer. You know, what, does, what is experiencing it as a dancer? That's paying attention to what you're feeling, paying attention to how you're moving, and welcoming outside influence. If there's something environmental, like music is an outside influence, it could be an environmental influence or the place that you're in. Um, and in allowing yourself to follow moment to moment impulses. Like if you, if you, when you, something comes up, whether it be a sensation, oh, wow, my, my, I'm feeling stiff in this area to, to like welcome moving into it and exploring it. Um, you know, those are all, you could consider those acts of dance. And I think that people tend to qualify themselves as, you know, I am not a dancer because I perceive a dance as this particular thing. A dancer must have these particular qualities. I don't have those qualities. And really that belief upholds the distinction between who is a dancer and who is not a dancer. Who are, do we allow to dance? Who do we not allow to dance? Who do we want to see moving and who do we not want to see moving? And like upholding those beliefs about like, I am not a dancer. It, it's not just doing ourselves a disservice. It does a disservice to other people too. I think that gen generally most of us want people to feel at home in their body and, and feel more relaxed and feel free. So one of the greatest things that we can all do is be like, yeah, screw it. Yeah. All right. I'm a dancer. Here goes. <laughs> I'm just going to move. I'm just going to get started moving. So um, that, that, is, that is why I said, no, you, you already are. I've been thinking a lot about this idea that one of the things that happens within capitalism, we'll say, I, I love capitalism in certain ways. And I also think that, that, it, <clears throat> that it is contrary to human well-being in other ways. And we need to, to work to, to balance that out. But one thing that it does is it really encourages us to, to um, to lean into whatever we have a market advantage doing and to do that to the exclusion of everything else. And so, be, so people become more and more specialized into a little niche. And that niche can be very economically productive, but it can be very limiting of the development of the self. And so we've moved from a world where dance is something that you do as part of a social world that you're engaged in to dance is something that you consume through watching other people do it. 
and same with singing, same with cooking. Um, I, you know, I, I literally think people are are moving more towards not even having sex themselves and just just watching the professionals do it. Um, something like thirty percent of men under the age of thirty have not had sex in the last year, according to the most recent statistics. Well, was that this year <laughs> or another year? <laughs> but uh, but um, but yeah, it's like the the we're we're more and more disconnected from these things, and. And I was, I was thinking about it, it's like, uh, there are professions, right? like you'd be a professional speaker, right? But nobody would say, I'm not a speaker. I mean, I, I speak, obviously I speak. And I think everybody has danced, right? Um, but we, we forget that. So I'm curious to hear you talk about how, why, why have, do you think that dance has become so intimidating for people to be open to? Partially attributed to the one of the forces you mentioned at the beginning when you said capitalism, capitalism, colonialism. I think that, am, am I breaking up? No, you sound good to me. I, okay, you were frozen, sorry. But capitalism, colonialism, organized religion, these are all forces that re removed people from their relationship, their embedded relationship with music and dance and song. Sometimes forcibly, right? Oftentimes forcibly. So those, those forces over time, like really took away many people's relationship, whether it was their own cultural heritage relationship with um, music, if, people are displaced from all because right it dance and and music are even in in a number of african cultures they're not distinguished as separate words like dance um dance and music and song like it's it's all something that is that occurs together it occurs like harmoniously and it's not something to be separated and removed or like you know, in some ways appropriated this the one one trait. Oh, I would like to take the movement from this thing, but but not experience my body in rhythm with music in sound in community. So it, there are these global forces that contributed to many of us not having grown up with a deep relationship to rhythm. Mm -hmm. Um. So I'm not too sure if I've answered the question, but it was, you were, you were pointing to a why, why are we disconnected from dance? Yeah, and I think that one of the things that's interesting about you and, and your approach is I think that you're really passionate about trying to lower those barriers, right? Mm. Trying to help people recover dance as something that is, um, available to them and potentially valuable and transformational, whether they have the potential to be professional in it or not, or, you know, super highly skilled or not. So can you talk, can you tell us a little bit about how you break those barriers down and why that's important to you? Mm -hmm. um, it's important to me because it, it feels tragic. It feels like a huge tragedy that people maybe go through their life and don't experience the joy 
of moving their body rhythmically and without worry about what other people think of them. Like that, it, to, to go through your whole life and, and um, feel rather when, when you encounter rhythm and you encounter celebration rather than feeling excitement and expansiveness and an opportunity to just be, instead we feel fear and retraction and um, you know, the looping voices of inadequacy and self-doubt and stories, like it is, it is tragic that that would be the experience you have this lifetime, truly. So, you know, how do I, how do I, I <laughs> inch people into this experience of dance? And I had mentioned to you, one is that I don't tend to use the, use the word dance because the word itself is what carries a lot of the weight. If I say like, oh, this is a dance class, I'm going to help us dance. We already might start to have um, feeling like resistance in some, some area of the body. I know even for me, if I'm going into a, a form that I don't know, when, when it has a name and I have an association with what that name means about me and my abilities, I'm already going to start to have some sort of contraction or retraction in my body. But if we don't really call it dance, and instead we just propose some of the ingredients that allow us to begin to land in our bodies, um, then that's one of the tremendous ways. And as, as you know, I, I do a lot of work with the floor. And the reason, many reasons why the floor. One, um, you mentioned that you've struggled with rhythm, and that is also a lot of a lot of us who did not grow up in a way where relationship to rhythm is a, an essential part of everyday life. Like we understand, we understand how things operate here because there is a rhythm. Like it, it's it's different. We know our daily rhythms, but we don't have this this musical relationship to rhythm through the body. Um, and when you're on the floor, it becomes a lot less important rhythm now now that i i bring rhythm into my teaching because i think it's very it's very important <laughs> it's like something that eventually it's it's going to become um you know something that that really holds you back in any any movement pursuit you know like because ultimately rhythm we have this um it's something that you're in response to sound, but also it, it speaks to coordination within your body and it speaks to efficiency because you can't be uncoordinated and you can't be inefficient and be really rhythmic. You can't, um, but the floor rhythm, at least we can take that away. Like there's no need to step to the beat. There's no need to shift to the beat. Another is that it's a lot harder to look at what everyone else is doing and to, to be concerned about what everyone else is doing because you're laying on the ground. Um, we have so much more feedback. Like our proprioception is heightened because we are, there's so much of us in contact with the ground. And you know, one of the big ingredients for flow is that we, we, we feedback, like being able to get information about how we're doing is, is something that's very important for helping us um, land and stay focused. So with, when we have connection to something, usually it's just through the feet if we're standing up and most people have grown up in shoes and the bottoms of their feet can't communicate 
and they don't pick up sensitive sensations. And maybe they just don't even articulate in ways that they could really feel the ground. But when we lay on the ground, our, like our whole body is able to pick up detailed information from the floor, which also means that we have something to continually return our focus to. When standing, if I, if, if, um, you know, your attention has wandered, someone might invite you back into your, you know, some area of your body, but with the floor, we can keep returning our attention to how we're connected to the floor and what's happening, happening at the level of contact. And, um, as, as far as floor work goes, those are just a few of the reasons that I, I really like to bring people to the floor as an introduction to this experience of dancing or to really what I, why I consider is like continuous movement, continuous um, movement that's not based on mimicking what I'm doing. So non-mimicry based, non-choreographed continuous movement. So I love the idea of the floor, right? Because you're talking about essentially, well, I think one of the problems that we face is essentially people are, are kind of disembodied, right? Um, their, their map of their body and their connection of their body and their articulation and understanding of their body is limited. And we, we can very easily sort of mm, occupy just our, our, our thinking mind. And so when we're, we're trying to get people into movement, we want to get them in their body. Uh, we want to get them attuned to their body, recognizing the body. Um, and, and what you're saying is that the floor essentially is sending a much stronger signal than standing on your feet. And a signal that is easier for someone to attune to than the signal of a beat. Mm -hmm. right? It's a beginning point to sensitizing the body. Well, not everyone. People, people that didn't grow up with a deep relationship to rhythm, it is easier, but, but not for everyone, because if you've never been on the floor before, it's plenty awkward, right? Yeah. And, you know, the, the interesting, um, one of the interesting phenomena that happens is that people will tend to respond to meeting something hard with hardness in the body, rather than meeting something hard with softness in the body. And that's another thing that the floor teaches us is how to release, how to let go and how to, to meet something hard with softness and to see how much more comfortable it suddenly becomes when you can dissolve the tensions. And it's, it's, it's you know, when you're in, laying on the ground, it's really unnecessary to continue to hold tension because the ground is actually holding you, but we're in resistance to that. Applied to standing, it's quite, you know, quite the same. Like when you allow the ground to hold you, it's a lot easier to connect to rhythm. When we are in some ways like hovering ourselves from really connecting to the ground, it's very difficult to connect to the rhythm. We're not in the ground or in the earth enough to let sound travel up and down through the body. Yeah. Um, so one of the questions that I have that I you know, that I came to you with, you know, eight years ago, I think, is that what is the role of dancer in, in a broader movement culture? And if we look at, if we look at movement as a, as a necessary part, really, of self-cultivation, right? Something like parkour, it's like, well, you can, you can escape a bad guy, you can chase somebody down, you can get out of the bird. Martial arts, you can fight somebody off. 
and being able to throw something that's hunting. Why do we dance? What do, why do human beings dance? And, and why would someone who, who is looking to develop themselves, why would they want to bring this into that uh, practice? Um, well, I think you could, we could look at this question more in terms of why have humans danced throughout history, which is a very different answer than why would someone who is trying to now formulate a movement practice that makes them a good model human mover incorporate or appropriate or somehow figure out how to include dance? It's a different answer, okay. right? Like, is it, so his, like historically, why are people dancing? Um, two, two main reasons. One, or I think I could say three main reasons. One is to transmit important information, cultural information. Um, here in Polynesia, many of the, the dances are about specific places. And it's, it's not just a, a, a reverence for a place, it's actually to continue to tell the story of a place and the gestures are um, how this place how this place flows, how this place is cared for, how we as humans interact with this place. Um, there's also dance in a more a, a ecstatic form, which is, you know, get out of your head to heal, to, to set yourself free. So there's these um, dance forms that are you know, they're, they're, that's why I was saying it was really also embedded with story. The, the, the music, song, dance, story, it's not, they're not separate things. It's, it's a thing that, um, and then this other form of dance that you'll see that, like I said, is ecstatic. It's to, to go to a different realm, to trans, transmit the, uh, the everyday experiences, to go um, and get lost. That's, and when, when many people think of like, I, I finally got in the zone and I finally like found my flow, they're thinking a little bit more in that realm of like ecstatic movement. Um, and, and then there's the, the purpose of helping people develop the coordinations that they need for everyday motions, like re a replication of everyday movements used in like agriculture or even in fighting through dance. So it's a, it's a way to, to build coordination in relationship to your culture and um, it can be taught to the children and then people are prepared for what they will encounter so similar to how play is preparing us for what we will encounter later on these like dance experiences are also preparation for things that we will encounter through life you know like we how much how many times have you heard of some phrase uh, uh, that where people need to learn to to dance with the idea or you're not really having fun with it until you're dancing right and that's metaphorical but it's also it's kind of real like until you can find this um like joyous ease i say another another function of dance is is that there was a a health correlation like it was okay when it so happens that women who are moving their hips and stirring their hips in, a, in these patterns have much easier births, are more fertile. So the women do this dance because it's important for our culture that we carry on. And so there's, there are dance forms that um, are also 
helping us do a physical practice that's good for our health and our community's health. So like those are all some of the more historical reasons, which is, is they, maybe it's the same, maybe it's different than if someone is like, why should I include dance in my practice? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that understanding the history of human physical practices is, a, is an important guide, right? Like uh, if people have always danced, then that's, you know, it's like you're, you're a person, you might want to consider doing the things that people have always done. Um, how do you treat your human? Well, humans have treated themselves with dancing for a long time. There's a couple, so I had a really interesting conversation with Simon Thacker about this. And we we're talking about how uh, great athletes often have dance backgrounds. And it's often kind of, you know, um, the example we, we came, well, that popped to mind is Israel Adesanya, who's the middleweight champion in the UFC right now. Um, Apparently he didn't train martial arts until he was 18 years old, but he was a hip hop dancer. And he walked into the gym and a week after his first MMA class uh, took a fight, right? Or his first kickboxing class. And then, you know, he was off and running. But there's something about the way that he moves. You know, you can see him literally popping and locking as a way of, of um, creating illusions while he's fighting that allow him to manipulate his, his partner's um, perception, which is obviously huge in fighting. Uh -huh. Fighting is very much about rhythm, right? It's very much about being able to establish a rhythm, break a rhythm, understand somebody else's rhythm and learn to predict how they will move based off of that rhythm. Yeah. Uh, so there's a, there's a deep inter interaction there. Um, what occurred to me, what popped into my mind as you were talking about the, the cross-cultural context is how much actually dance and song were, were integrated into work, right? That in these agrarian societies, you know, you're, when, you're, when you're threshing the grain, you use a song and you use a rhythm in order to allow the work to become more efficient and allow it to be uh, a communal event, right? And so dance isn't something that just happens at the festival. It's actually something that's weaved in the fabric of everyday life. I was a... When I was young, I was uh, into Celtic stuff. And I, I studied Gaelic with the Seattle Gaelic Society, Schlimm and Gael. Um, and we did walking songs. Walking is, uh, is a Scots, Scottish term for, um, for, uh, for basically smashing a tweed soaked in urine repetitively <laughs> until it shrinks to the, the shape that you're looking for. And they have a whole litany, they have a huge song library around that. And then you can, you can think of it as a dance, right? It's a physical task that they're doing, but it has a rhythm to it. And the rhythm is in response to music. And in order to do the task effectively, they're calling forth the music. And so when you talk about these cultures where rhythm is woven in daily life, like it actually had this really direct functionality of helping people organized work you know right now sea shanties are huge on tiktok so I, I i thought that was curious but one thing that's interesting about that is that human beings birds dance right for reproduction mm. um we're gonna take a little walk my internet is not liking us right here but <laughs> speaking of movement <laughs> um so yeah, so I, I was very curious about that that one of 
thinking about how, how song and music and dance are, are integral to actually just functional living in a lot of pre-modern contexts. But is it limited to pre-modern contexts? Well, because here's one of the other things that I think a, 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 now we often we see dance um, on in theatrical context or like even on TV as representing some of the like the more painful emo emotions, you know, mm -hmm. like these dances of heartbreak and mourning and, and the day right dance fulfills all these functions like what whatever whatever um life transition or emotion needs to be expressed that's something that can be expressed through dance emotion is a source of rhythm right every in some like an, a, an emotion or a feeling has a certain pulse like if we were all to pause right now you might be able to identify like what the the rhythm is right now for you it might be your heartbeat it might be the, the pace of your thoughts. Um, that emotion carries a rhythm, but the one that people tend to have a lot of trouble accessing is joy. Can you access joy? Can you move as joy? I love to work with youthfulness as a as a prompt, as a something to embody, as a question to ask myself and to ask other people why they're moving. How would you do this? Like if you felt youthful, how would, how would you have done this in your youth? And it's amazing the, the shift that they can happen for you in your movement, whether it's like joy, um, youthfulness, even maybe some of the qualities we associate with youthful movement, like, you know, springiness, carefree, uh, in lack of fear, it, not holding on to stories about, oh, but this knee doesn't bend and my back doesn't go that way, not attached to stories, just moving. It's amazing what can shift with just like inviting one of those questions or one of those ideas. That's something that you cannot, you cannot really cue someone into that state of ultimately ease and, and connection and, and celebration. So I think that that's an import, a very important function of dance, which you, you see in many African dance forms that there's a, there's a clear joyousness and youthfulness that is um, integral to the, to the dance forms. And that's something that many people haven't been able to access, they haven't felt safe accessing it, they don't know, they don't know how, but I think it's just so essential. And you know, what, what do you, how do you need to move? It could be incredibly simple, right? It could just be just, it could be bouncing. The simplest, the simplest movement is often the best representation of like joy. It's, it's certainly not being able to do crazy, crazy tricks and skills. <laughs> it's not. I'm struck, you know, as you're talking about bouncing, I remember my kids, right? Eight-year-old, uh, eight six-year-old, and two-year-old, right? And they're all in the living room. We basically turned our living room into a play space for them. And they turn on music, and they they do a lot of things, right? They're very acrobatic. They're 
but, but some of the times you're just bouncing. And I'd love to watch them bounce because their elasticity and their freedom of movement is really amazing. And it's amazing how like when they're in that, that playful dance space, their creativity and movement is outrageous, right? They just come up with stuff. Like my, my son did a cartwheel on a balance beam while dancing. <laughs> <laughs> an easy skill yeah uh, bouncing and twisting and vaulting things and doing acrobatics <clears throat> so that capacity to tap into that uh, youthful freedom right and there's something interesting about how self-conscious people are about dance right and how that is in some sense so contrary to the mind of a child right mm -hmm. like every have you ever noticed that every child feels that they're very, very fast? Like they can all run really, really fast. If you're under six years old, you're the fastest six-year-old on the planet every single one, right? Because their, their experience is dominated by their own perception of what it feels like to run, right? When they run as fast as they can, it feels really fast, so therefore they're fast. Um, and so they don't have a self-consciousness of what they're they're jumping and dancing looks like to somebody else. So one of the things that's interesting to me about your teaching, it's funny, I, I, sometimes I get out, people give me a hard time about the fact that involvement play isn't as playful as it might sound, right? Because I'm kind of a serious guy in a way. And I, I think very philosophically and I like to, you know, jump far and practice ways to hit people. Um, but one thing that you do actually really beautifully is you bring a lot of goofiness to your your movement you play a lot of games and you you like to tap into some emotions that um that maybe aren't the emotions people associate with say modern dance um yeah. So, yeah tell me a little bit about about the role of goofiness in uh in your teaching yeah um that also ties back to a question you asked earlier about you know kind of how we are welcoming people into this dance like way of moving and you know one of the one of the most powerful ways to help people feel safe which we have to feel safe if we're going to then if we're going to you know move creatively or freely we have to feel safe is humor and silliness and like what a way to dissolve the egos in the room than to do something that is ridiculous where like it's, it's there's not going to be a, a hierarch, hierarchy of like oh well somebody's arms going higher they must be better you know it's it is um this yeah dissolving of any idea about what should be happening right now and i particularly um in in person environments like to surprise people and derail something that appears to be serious by changing it into something that's ridiculous and i think that it it's it's i mean it's it's incredible to watch if you if you go you can go scanning the energies in the room like you know people that maybe they were you know they're very prefrontal they were thinking about the task we're like doing a balancing exercise and then through the combination of like what i'm asking them to do what they begin doing how they're interacting with someone else it's like the, their energy becomes so much more spherical, like the kind of like the, the joy of their kinosphere in the room is palpable. And like the whole room starts to 
kind of vibrate. And then from there, people are far more willing to engage with music and to go into something that's joyous or celebrate celebratory. Um, so yeah, you know, goofiness and youthfulness, very related. And if we were going to reduce it down to like, you know, why, why is this good for us? Why would one be goofy and silly? What can I get out of that? <laughs> you could look at, think about the, how are the, the tissues of your body? How is, how are you using elasticity? How is, if someone is an elastic mover versus like not an elastic mover, you know, who's probably going to have more inflammation and pain? Probably the person who's not very elastic because it turns out that when we're able to move in these like resilient and bouncy and rhythmic ways, like we, we not only get a lot of information about how our joints and tissues are doing, we are doing the very thing that tends to restore harmonious movement. Um, so yeah. Play and goofiness help people feel safe. It's, it's important that we're not taking things too seriously because I think that it too, when we, when we like, you know, over intellectualize or make things too serious, it can, it can, it can block us from accessing our artistry. It can block us from being able to um, move through some things that we, we might not normally allow to move through us. So could you give us some examples of, of games that you use to help people get comfortable with being ridiculous? You know, the, the tricky thing is that the best ones come up organically always because and, and you know i have i have there's sure there's some games right and, and and maybe in this conversation one will come to mind but when it's prescriptive it also loses the play because my role as the teacher is to be playing with the people in the room and so i have a i have a plan of like oh here are some concepts that we're going to work on today i here's a here's a pattern that i think might really benefit these people but my underlying motive is always like how can I help them be here now? And how can I help them leave here in a way that will benefit the people they come in contact with? And for sure, when they have played and they have laughed, they're gonna be <laughs> you know, open and, and that is contagious for the people around them. Um, but something that, that uh, when I said it's, it, it happens organically, um, it might begin with a gesture that we're doing like if, if it's if it's something as simple as like wrist circles and we're trying to do a, a, you know, a slow controlled articular rotation of the hands and starting to layer in imagery of like that of what you are massaging and this might turn into something where I'm taking them to different areas of the room and through the images they're working with, it becomes ridiculous. Through asking people to begin to make sound because we are so terrified of making sound in groups that are that is not words, then it it starts to also because it it like tickles embarrassment when we like lightly tickle the embarrassment uh, for people, then they it does actually start to help us loosen up. Um, uh, sometimes the the games arise from something strange that came out of my my mouth <laughs> like a I say a word in a strange way that sounded particularly like a southern accent and then I begin to teach as this character 
as this teacher who would tell you that you need to bend your knees when you bend over because otherwise you might pull a hamstring and as I go into this character it determines what we're doing and it, it, um, it those sorts of exchanges are are my favorite so that you know I think it's hard for me to answer this question in some ways because of if play and games become prescriptive they're not originating in play mm -hmm. I, yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And I, I think sometimes you can think from principles and I do think it's useful to have structures and then from those structures, you, you freestyle. You always, you always let go of the structure. Um, I was listening to your interview with Kyle Finch, a mutual friend of ours. And one of the things you talked about, which I was not aware of, was the role of improv comedy in um, in your approach. And it, it's funny because I talk a lot about the idea of like embodying courage, embodying virtue. And I often think that for a lot of people, physical courage is really, really valuable, but they need social courage. And there's only so much transfer between it. And so I think a lot of these young like men in particular who I work with who are, uh, who are socially inhibited, and they, they get some strength, they, you know, they make their body beautiful, and then they're still socially inhibited. It's like, go to a Toastmasters class, go to an improv mm -hmm. class. And then you'll then you'll take the next step, right? Um, so I haven't done it though, and I thought it'd be such a powerful thing. Like as a coach, right? I feel like as a coach, having some good improv, having some good improv comedy would be such a powerful tool. So, so I, I was very curious when I heard you say that, and it sounds like it also connects maybe to this, this idea of how we set up the games, how we think about the games. So tell me a little bit about what uh, you know uh, improv comedy means to you, and how it uh, relates to this. To the work that you do. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I, I look at my relationship to improv as primarily as a super fan because my, my experience in it was limited to um, classes I would take in New York City uh, periodically, um, which though even, even just a session of improv comedy or several classes for many people can, it can change your life. When you really, when you learn to yes and and you actually successfully do it and 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 stop fighting against your predetermined notions of how you want other people to behave that is it is so powerful um but i it, you know one of the beautiful things about living in new york city pre-pandemic was that the the improv comedy venues they the shows were like five bucks <laughs> it's like the cheapest entertainment and um for me, like the most fulfilling kind of entertainment that I could be a part of. And that's kind of what it feels like when you're in the audience, rather than watching something that people have created and formulated and are now presenting to you, you are riveted because nobody knows what's about to happen. And to, to watch um, how the people on stage get involved with one another and, and bring their own life experiences into creating this never to be repeated impossible to describe and that's the really you know a distinction maybe between like dance and improv comedy and like a workout you could say well i did this many of this and i did this many rips reps and it was great but like you can't you can't try to tell someone what happened in an improv comedy scene it, it's impossible it's like parkour yeah like <laughs> Parkour is probably not as bad as improv, 
but it's, it's along those lines because generally, like most people, the way that we train parkour, you, know, you go out and you do what looks interesting and you wander around until you find a jump or a line that's interesting to you. And then later you'll be like, oh man, I had this great training session, especially if you're like someone who doesn't do parkour and you want to describe and you're so excited about what you did. It's the most awkward and completely useless conversation you could possibly have. Right. Because right, not every not everything can be verbally articulated. And that's that's also why I think people need to experience it because most of what we're doing is something that we can talk about and we can you can use words to help us understand it. But there's some things like dance that simply can't be transmitted, transcribed, notated in any way that does it justice. And if everything you're doing is something that you could really write down and understand, that's right. You know, I encourage you to find ways to do things that you cannot find words for. And at times relinquish the need to. Yeah. I, I get really into the scientific side of practice, right? And so I want to be able Which to I appreciate about you. <laughs> um and, and I always try to remind myself, you know, not everything that matters can be measured and not everything that is measured matters. And I think that, um, that you're proposing almost an extension of that, right? Which is not everything that can be, that, that matters can be articulated, right? And this, is, this gets into my whole conversation with John Vicky about propositional knowledge versus, versus procedural perspective and participatory. The thing is, is a chance to enter into experiences that are inherently participatory. That they, you know, you're like, you just, there's no way to get propositional. Um, so, in some sense, when I ask you for the specific game, right, I'm asking you for a set of propositions that someone can take from this interview and go do. And you're saying, I can't give you the sensitivity and the uh, experience and the perspective that I have. Um, you have to come do it. Yeah, you know, right. I can't give the game. I, I mean, I can give some, some pointers for being more receptive for the potential of a game. And if they're, like I was saying, if there's, there's gestures and actions in our movement practices, you know, okay. There's a, there's a, I'm, if you're not watching the video, I'm kind of like swinging my arms as if I was like walking or running though I'm seated, you know? So what is this like? This is like walking and running, you know? And what would make this walking and running uh, abnormal in some way? Like what, what can we add to this scene? Because ultimately like we are people in a room simulate, we're doing arm swings, which is some simulation of a, of a real thing that happens in real life. But they're, you know, what would make this a little bit ridiculous or what would prompt us to do it in a way that we probably haven't done it before? So I think it's, um, I'm seeing often in, in creating games, the co correlation between the mechanics of what is happening and real situations that people have experienced and then adding layers of strangeness to it and an unfamiliarity um, that tends to 
get somewhat ridiculous at a, at a certain point. And I know with, with Kyle, I, I was expressing how, you know, turning the floor into like a trampoline or turning the floor into a swimming pool. And now by itself, like, okay, that's fun. We could, we could interact with this wall here and, you know, pretend that it's covered in um, padding, like you're in a padded room, but we want to be also be gentle. So we're throwing ourselves against the wall, slow motion and seeing <laughs> what happens. But as we add um, more and more ingredients to that scene of your own experience, then you know a, a, a game develops. So perhaps there, right there, is a pretty strong relationship between building a game and having a scene. Because I have had plenty of experiences in movement classes and environments where, like, there's a game to be played, and. Um, it's, you know, tremendous for helping people land and flow and land in their bodies, right? We have to be very, very focused. We have to be engaged to play a game with another person, but it does often lack the freedom to like build on the game, transform the game into something else. And to, to frankly, really be playful, right? We can play a game without being playful as a, as a quality, I've even been scolded in a class before where we were playing some kind of like movement or rhythm game. And, you know, I'm, I took it, I went with it and it was like, you know, it's too much. No, <laughs> tone it down, tone, tone down all that fun you guys are having. There's too much of that in the world. So. It's a, it's a funny thing that happens in my seminars where well, I'll set up a, a, a game night and people will be playing the game and they'll see me and they'll act apologetic about the way that they've added variation to the game. And I'm always like, how dare you? How dare you play with the game right. and you play seminar, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I get where you're coming from. People are, it's interesting because I, I think that you, you need constraints to make a game work. Right. There has to be there has to be some direction, some orientation to the game, and then there has to be some kind of um, some sort of boundaries to the game. Otherwise, there's not enough structure and it falls apart. At the same time, you once the boundaries and the constraints and orientation are in place, the the experience of being in play can be collapsed into just fulfilling the constraints right mm -hmm. you know soccer is, is has a very clear motivational structure has very clear goals it's infinite because it can play out in any number of ways and it's highly motivational people all of them play it but i think anyone who's played a team sport um for a long time and reached like a you know a good level with it knows that sometimes they're playing playfully and they're enjoying the experience and it's highly rewarding and sometimes they're grinding through the experience and so there's a there's a difference between yeah playing and being in a state of playfulness mm -hmm. so well why would we be more concerned about the playfulness than the play like it seems to me that you're more concerned about playfulness right? i'm i'm not I, uh, uh, most of my classes are not ridiculous. Like this is a, this is a, this is a thing that shows up like a, just like this spark that just so happens. It's what people walk away remembering too. So it might be something that only takes up like two minutes of a, of a 
two hour class. So I'm not, I'm not more concerned with it, but I, I, I do build everything I teach in with considering what is happening in the world and what, what can I propose or what ingredients should I bring into this experience that I think will help the people in this room and how they show up out there. And playfulness is definitely important and not taking ourselves so seriously, not being so attached to outcomes and, and, you, you know, measurable skill development that we can't find joy and pleasure in the present. So, and, you know, on that note, like pleasurable movement doesn't necessarily look playful, right? Many people look quite serious when they're doing something that is immensely pleasurable for them. So that, that those are, it's just an ingredient that's frequently missing. So I don't, prioritize it um over um just play and uh, constraints often we're for creative work in movement um very clear constraints tend to set people free that, that and when it's very specific and and in many ways very narrow there we have the we have the, the fastest learning you cannot bend either leg while you do this exercise for a full minute. And then suddenly people really learn about their knees in a way that they never have before. So something a very specific, very narrow, non-imaginative. It's like a, actually like a rather like mechanical prompt. I tend to work first with um, that like body position and body orientation, spatial orientation based restrictions rather than imaginative and certainly not emotional restrictions because those are, those are tools for movement learning and accessing movement. It's, it's certainly harder to grasp. <laughs> um, but I, something came up for me when you were talking about like the, the, the importance of constraints in the game. You know, there, there comes a point maybe where people are um, playing a game with constraints where it, it stops holding their attention. Mm -hmm. when it, it, it's it's becomes like less engaging then i think an important question is like what can you do to this game to this experience to help you really stay in it like what little change do you need to make about how you're doing this and how you're engaging to keep it interesting to you rather than abandoning it because our tendency not just in movement, but in life is when something loses, like it doesn't hold our full interest that we like turn, turn away from it, walk away from it rather than staying with it and, and saying like, what's the little thing I need to do? You know what? I just need to move my hips more. Like that's for me often. If it's like, I'm in a movement class and we're bouncing balls or something like I have, I, my attention starts to wander. Okay. I could make it, I could make it more in my legs and in my hips. And suddenly you have my attention again, because I've relocated in my body and, and reestablished my connection to the space that I'm in. Yeah. That's uh, I think that that need to renew practice right? and to find like playful. One of the really beautiful short definitions of play is that it's repetition with variation, right? You, you do a task, you do whatever, and then I apologize for that. Had it on. <clears throat> Let me turn this on to airplane mode. Here's the problem with live. Um, <laughs>
Uh, and we're back. So, where was I? Play, Play. repetition. Yeah. So, one thing I've noticed is let's say I'm teaching people to do vaults in parkour, right? And they have one thing to go over and one thing to go under, and another thing to go under. And I say, okay, do that, right? And I'm very interested in effectiveness. Right? I'm trying to, to get them to recognize the, the most successful strategy for being able to do this flowingly and fast and powerfully and effectively, right? But if you just tell people, go over, go under, go over, and you just give them space to do it, you don't, you don't give them lots more verbs, very quickly, they will start adding variation. They'll do it one way, especially if they have some level, a higher level of physical competence, they're gonna just start doing funky stuff. And they're gonna have a lot of fun doing that. Funky stuff. It turns out that that's actually really good for motor learning, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of learning, not just, not just in the motor system, but all these other systems are getting engaged. Um, and that's play, right? That's play. And we, when we, when we become static in our confidence, at least. I don't think it's, you know, where it's not changing a lot. If we don't have these ways of enlivening it, then we can easily lose interest. And then a little goofiness can be a really powerful tool. Another powerful tool can be just changing the constraints, right? Changing the game slightly. Mm -hmm. um, a tool that comes up a lot in, in my work that often I hear the comment after, you know, I've, I've never felt myself so much, or I've never landed in my body. So I can't believe I made it through that whole song. And I wasn't thinking it was actually the use of extremely slow movement. Um, it's, you know, it's just a tempo that people rarely experience in life. Like it's a, it is a rhythm and a way of being <laughs> that people rarely experience now. So to go super slow and I, I you know, we could call it like sloth-like speed. I like to think of it as like, you know, watching a candle melt speed. Um, and my personal favorite is, you know, when, when we watch something that's like a candle melting, we're actually watching something very ha happen very slowly. But when we watch a high, you know, high speed or slow motion footage of a high speed action, like, in, you know, an explosion or someone leaping, we, we see something very different. Where you can see really see the totality of someone's movement and how it is like every cell of their being is involved in this coordination and what happens when we when we practice moving extremely slow but with that level of connection throughout our, our movement like with such a tremendous teaching tool also helping people land in their bodies and you if when you move slow enough you're able to observe your impulses and not act on them which is a big one for learning how to be more creative because if we continue to if we follow our impulses well then you're just rehearsing patterns and patterns and patterns and doing the same because you're going to have the impulse to do what you've done before for the most part unless you've trained yourself to have impulses to seek the things that you haven't done right but for the for we can go i'm feeling 
that I really want to continue reaching around my head right now. And rather than making a speedy up, you know, correction or adjustment, I'm going to change my trajectory and I'm going to choose to go somewhere else now. So I'm going slow enough that I can notice my habitual thought patterns, notice my movement impulses, gather data about how my, my joints are, like, you know, really important information that tends, we tend to not have space for in the tempo and also the way that many people learn movement, a lot of mimicry or in the context of dance, like choreography. I think choreography has its purpose, but it is one of the greatest faults of dance education in the last like a couple hundred years Western culture is that people learn dance through choreography. And you are, you are kind of stupefying people. <laughs> like you're not training them to really notice their own impulses. And, um, and that contributes to why many people say I'm not a dancer because it's hard for them to learn choreography. It's hard for them to make their form fit into someone else's forms and ideas. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, uh, I always remember my first modern dance class because it was, I walked into an advanced modern dance class thinking that I was like a really beginner modern dance class. And the class was taught in blocks of eight movement phrases, working up to a 36 movement choreograph over the course of, you know, two hours. Um, and I, luckily a lot of it was groundwork. So my parkour background and play I'd done on the ground kind of held me in good stead, but the kicks and the spins and the jumps were pretty foreign to me. And it was one of the most humbling experiences that I've had. I mean, which was, I was, I was in a, I was in a place where that was very intriguing. And I was, I was like, okay, this is cool. But I did only last six weeks. Um, so it was just too exhausting. But I, I mean, I think there's something really powerful about the memory capacity that you built there. Mm -hmm. Hearing your critique of it as, as um, a barrier to the sensitivity that you're, mm -hmm. you view as like central to um, preparing yeah. most from dance practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, what, you, what, what does, um, and I make a distinction between um, learning a movement pattern and pathway and then learning like choreography or lengthy phrases. And I, I can't say here's the point at which a, a small phrase or pathway becomes choreography in terms of the length of it. But I, I think it, it, it does have a lot to do with that in the individual's working memory with the content. Like as soon as you start giving me beyond what I can really remember and my general feeling is that I am lost, it's, it's not doing a lot of good. Um, but, but also like we can, we can experience different movement pathways by learning someone else's idea of a, of a pathway, but overwhelmingly the experience for adult movers who are interested in dance, which is primarily who I work with is adults who did not grow up as dancers who now have an interest in, you know, dance or just fluid movement, like freer movement is that they, their experience has been, I'd like to take a class. They go to a class and it's, it's asking them to remember and memorize a lot. And you know, where does that put us? It, it puts us in our head, yep. which is, 
not going to help us dance if it's the if it's the majority of the work in the dance class is being in your head and not gaining the tools to land in your body. I feel like there, I mean, I want to say that I think there is some utility to it. For me, there was because because um, I feel like I learned to be able to remember without remembering. I, I like I couldn't I couldn't possibly hold every piece of information about the movement in my mind. So I so what was really interesting about that experience for me was learning how to utilize moments in the movement as mnemonics for remembering the other pieces of the movement. Mm -hmm. It was like I can't remember everything, but this tells me the information which allows that me to have like a small compressed version of that movement that expands the moment that I need. And I thought that was a very interesting, it was a very interesting cognitive tool set to acquire. Yeah, and it is. It, and you, you mentioned the utility, like it absolutely has utility. And it, it one of the, you know, interesting things is that you were developing the ability to, um, to acquire patterns of movement and you're working to then not still be thinking about them, to be able to kind of like ride the pathways that have been laid out throughout the course of this class until the point that you can just do it your own way. But my, my complaint is usually that the expectation is too large in the choreography or it takes a it takes too much of a priority within it within many dance class contexts. Like there's a short, rather irrelevant warm up often, and then you have like let's learn this really long routine, but maybe not so many tools to help people um, understand what would be natural for them um, to get to know their body. But you know, going back to more historical uses of dance, like you know. Uh, dance phrases that are passed between people that is like choreography though the right it's wasn't isn't called that but like to say that it's a learned pattern of movement that we can perform together we can perform alone someone could look at it and be like oh you're doing that dance i learned that dance um and of course it, it has it has symbolic value it, it has you know aesthetic value um I am often trying to help people deprioritize de aesthetics in their own experience or deprioritize their concern with aesthetics because that's another thing that prevents them from landing in flow. Ultimately, they, if we're concerned about how we look, if we're concerned if we're doing it right, then where are we? Yeah, that's an interesting thing I've noticed, I mean, I've, you know, my, my exposure to the dance world and through a series of classes, but then through a lot of people who I would say are uh, at the intersection of movement culture or whatever that means and in dance. So that's you, that's Shira, that's Tom, that's Fighting Monkey. And, um, and I've gotten the feedback from, I think all of you that that you're trying to get away from an attention to aesthetics, that you're trying to achieve aesthetics through attention to something else or, mm. or not achieve aesthetics. Um, which is interesting because 
I think for like often as generalists, we're coming to dance to to find a sense of grace or or an aesthetic or a line to our movement that's not going to necessarily emerge, right? Mm-hmm. I think you probably know you might know Cosmo Dudley from uh, mm-hmm. right? it's like you said, circus artists, they all dance to get aesthetics in their movement, right? It's like yeah. you're if you're a performing hand balancer, you train dance in order to have better aesthetics for your hand balance performance. So I'm curious how you see that, that relationship between the tyranny of aesthetics in some sense mm-hmm. for, versus the utility of the aesthetics of dance for, for movers who come from another, another base. Yeah. Use for a martial artist to think, how can I move more beautiful? Um. There's a lot there, <laughs> uh, you know, because <laughs> the first another tragedy has been when people say something is dance and something is not dance because it fits my beauty standards. Mm-hmm. And overwhelmingly, it has been dominant culture saying that like ballet and European derived dance forms have value, have more value because they fit our beauty standards. And that is still for many people, let's say circus artists or dancers, like they're still, you know, trying to form their body into some variation of the aesthetics that came from ballet. I grew up doing ballet and I love it and it's beautiful. And when I, you know, I watch it and you watch someone who is a technician of this, this way of dancing, we see like I see beauty and I see grace and I see something that I long for like wow you know to to be so light to to have so much ease with your leg just flying up (laughs) flying up (laughs) um and in in the viewer when we we see that way of moving it might also strike an emotional chord because like when we see something that to us is beautiful right we often may may feel something um and so people will often pursue dance or like you know what i would like my movement to be more beautiful so let me study dance but i think that as you mentioned your conversations with like joseph and fighting monkey and shira is that like there are there are ways to uh find aesthetic not by focusing on the the picture that it makes and and that is the the connection that you have i know when when i'm watching some someone move this the single thing that makes them most captivating is their attention their attention to what they're doing because like ultimately that's like the thing that is most captivating is like their like commitment and their attention when they're all in with what they're doing and i can tell that they're really in that that moment the moment that moment that moment rather than replicating something or trying to form themselves into a cultural notion about what is beautiful and of course if you've trained moving a certain way your body is going to fit the forms that you've trained as you move. But um, I think also the beauty of this is we have options. You could, you could be uh, extraordinarily aesthetically motivated 
mover with zero care about ever like free styling or, um, you know, it, wanting to exclude a lot of positions from your movement, which is what we have. Because a lot of what, um, you know, is aesthetics is that we're seeking something, but we're also excluding a lot of things. And that's, I, I think, in terms of like what it, the, the consequence for the human, there's risk there. There's risk there because a lot of what we associate as like beautiful, and this is Western notions of beauty and dance. We are like avoiding the grotesque. We are avoiding that which looks particularly primitive, primal, earthen, phonic, like that which is has the, the, the rawness or the, the emotions that we try to remove from our everyday life. Those, if we are like, oh, I don't wanna access that in my dancing, you know, what are, who are you training yourself to be? I personally do both in my dance. Like I, I, people know me because I know how to put my body in positions that are can widely considered pretty. Yeah. But I will not limit myself to those modes of expression because the reality is that when I do, I don't feel so good. I feel inflammation. I feel not as happy. I don't access joy as easily when I'm doing that. I am fulfilling some sort of, you know, the, what, I've, what I've practiced throughout my life and, and people appreciate when I move that way. And I also enjoy it, but I certainly see the risks in um, having uh, your identity tied, tied to the aesthetics of what you produce over the experience and what the larger consequences are. Mm -hmm. Something that comes up for me is that just the idea of beauty in general, right? Like there's, I think that um, within modern art and postmodern art, uh, there's this idea of the death of beauty and literature as well. And, um, and, and so there, are, you know, like I, I'm appalled by modernist and postmodernist architecture. I think that it's absolutely destructive to human spirit. <laughs> and, uh, and I, and I, and I think there's something very, very dangerous about that. Um, but also, there is this reality of a kind of a tyranny of beauty. Right? Um, my, my daughters have been praised for their appearance since they were very small. Right. And so Audrey in particular, when she was really little, just like everybody's always like, you know, the cutest little girl. She's so cute. She's so cute. Just like all the time. <clears throat> and, you know, I'm not, I'm, I, I wouldn't describe myself as like a particularly feminist person, but, but there was this thing in me that was like, I'm just not going to talk about, I'm not going to tell her that. Right. I'm just going to like, I'm going to tell her all the other, other things that I love about her because because she's just going to get it so much, right? And I just don't want that to be too weighted into our consciousness. And I don't think there's anything wrong with being beautiful or recognizing that some things are more beautiful than others or wanting to pursue things that are beautiful. Mm -hmm. But what I, when I think about my daughters in particular, what I think is I don't want them to ever have their beauty um, uh, 
sorry, I'm struggling with the way that I describe this, but I don't want their body to be about what it presents to other people, not what that affords them to experience. Mm -hmm. I don't want them to walk through life seeing themselves as the object that is perceived by somebody else. Yeah. Um, and that seems to connect to what you're saying, that, that when we focus too much on the aesthetic of, 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 of how someone moves, what's getting lost is what is the value of the experience of having moved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, as, you, as you speak about your daughter, it's, it's, it's not only, you know, not, not wanting the way she experiences her body and movement to be um, maybe st structured by other people's views of like trying to fit into the notions of beauty um but it it also we we carry those stories with us all the time so it even if we're not thinking about what other people think we will still continue to hold, like hold ourselves back and and maybe you know maybe move in ways that are ultimately detrimental mm -hmm. there's a the postures that are like encouraged you're like you know I mean, I, I see it in, in strange places like scapular protraction and elevation. One of the reasons that a lot of people that I work with don't have it is because they interpret those positions as ugly. They find it unattractive to raise your shoulder all the way up to your ear. That is a position that we avoid because that position looks like fill in the blank. And so what happens, we, there's like a, there's a real consequence to what we allow ourselves to do, not just in our movement practices, but in our daily lives, because we're concerned about, you know, what it, what it symbolizes in terms of beauty. Like, is it beautiful or is it not? I'm teaching a course right now. And it was a rather large intake form. And the course is about inverting, like learning to go upside down, which for, for many people is a, is a long challenge. And like it also carries a lot of emotional weight because it's something that people really want to be able to do to get it upside down. You know, it means something that's like one of the cool things you can do on a pole, but many people spoke to about being afraid of like how, how they will look failing or um, trying. And in particular, that was of concern for me because there is a, there is a, a strength requirement there is a strength acquisition requirement to do many skills on the pole and if we are afraid of what it looks like when we recruit our full strength of like what it would look like to to experience like full body irradiation we block ourselves from being able to access our strength and so that's it's related because the people are concerned about how it looks that's tied to the cultural notions of beauty and as a result it's harming their range of motion and it's keeping them from being as strong as they can be, not just in the future, but even like right now, they can't access their strength. Um, so. As soon the, as you talk about inversion, I was just thinking about a handstand. I was like, everyone loves to take pictures of handstands, but like if you think about traditional facial aesthetics, it's not the best way to present. No. <laughs> and I can imagine that like if you're a young woman who's very, or a young man, uh, that's happening more in our culture now. But particularly, this has been traditional for young women, right? And it has very 
concerned about her presentation of beauty. Mm -hmm. The idea of being upside down on a pole, straining with one arm, and your face turning bright red and grimacing um, might be very off-putting, actually. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the interesting thing is that many people desire the skill, right, that requires like a huge amount of output and strength. They desire the skill, but they are afraid of looking and experiencing that level of like output or, you know, and of course, at some point you don't, you don't look like that. I mean, if everybody, if everybody who did cool tricks looked like they were turning purple and their veins were popping out of their forehead, I bet there would be less people who want to do that. <laughs> Part of the appeal is when someone can do something hard and it appears to be easy. But right, what's part of the journey to, to making it easy is the, the phase that maybe we weren't um, broadcasting. I always tell people, if you want to be the guy in the park or the girl in the park, attracting lots of attention for your beautiful aesthetic and cool tricks, you first have to be the guy in the park willing to fall down on your face in front of lots of people. Mm -hmm. you know, there's, no, there's no skipping that phase. Which, you know, that, that, that brings me to another thing of, of play, because some of my favorite movement experiences in my life have been where I've been falling over a lot, like be kind of out of failure, but also, and it was so fun. Like there was a class that was at, in New York, it was called breakbeat gymnastics, where it was a B-boy who taught a class in the gymnastics gym that was breaking, breaking patterns, but on the, on the gymnastics floor, which meant that you could fall over a lot and all the time and it was so fun and also now in in pole i'm when i'm training and i kind of like mess up and let go and fall over a little bit i find myself laughing and actually having like a really joyful session now the dangers of course poles on a hard floor and you don't want to just fall if you're in the air and you need to you need to know your body if you're gonna test those limits because there's like real potential consequences but when a, in a lower stakes environment, I think that it's also really important that we do like practice you falling and moving through the positions that we are, we are like, afraid of being seen in, like to, to be falling, to be falling over. And that's where, you know, in like, okay, in, in many dance contexts, if you're in a warm up and you're doing a, like a, a balance exercise, you're on demi point relevé or on, or on single leg, you know, like you really don't want to be falling over because it's you're good if you're perfectly balanced and if you're the one who's wobbling you're then less good rather than being encouraged to, to find those limits and actually if looking for the places which you fall is is something that you see more in like contemporary dance worlds but that's actually like a small a small part of the dance world so um I, yeah i, I try to help people be less afraid of, of looking silly. That's a, it's a powerful thing. It's, it's interesting because, I don't know, I'm, I feel like I'm experiencing perhaps more empathy for, for some of the tyranny of the male gaze that people talk about, or I don't know if it's really male gaze, but tyranny of aesthetics. Um, because it, growing up where I grew up as a male, it was a very sort of, hypermasculine like the idea that my face probably looks really funny when I'm deadlifting something really heavy 
has never occurred to me as a potential inhibiting factor. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to imagine that like, like a lot of women aren't afraid to lift heavy weights. And, you know, part of it is that like, I'll get bulky, right? So I'll be unattractive because of lifting weights long-term. But I'm wondering if also it's like, it's really takes you out of the beauty just to do the thing. Yes, yes, yes. I, I think that sure people say, oh, I, I, you know, I don't want to look like that person, which is a whole other topic. But there's, I, I think that I don't want to look the way I will look doing the thing right now is, is also real. Like in, in terms of the, the, the efforting, like to look like you're efforting. Um, Veins bulging out. afraid of it, yeah. And I've been afraid of it in my life. Like there's certain places where I would feel safe looking those ways and other places where I wouldn't feel as safe, you know, and I'm, I'm more over that now probably because I'm older, but, um, that's, it's, un, it's unfortunate. So there, I don't know, maybe this is a big can of worms, but I, I, this morning before I talked to you, I was uh, in conversation with John Verbeke and Paul Vanderclay, who's a Christian Reformed Church pastor. And part of the conversation was really about the idea of, uh, of recovering the, the valuable aspects of Christianity, but also integrating them more effectively with some of the insights from Buddhism and Taoism and shamanic practices or indigenous indigenous world and i'm thinking about ballet and it's high right it's up it's long it it's it's facially angelic right the facial expressions are are a calm beautific beauty right and and how that seems to reflect a uh, a specifically Christian history of viewing the body as um, as the antithesis of the spirit, right? That it is by getting away from the body that we are able to approach heaven. And then to compare that to uh, African dance, where the facial expressions are so much more variable and you know show so much more of the the earthiness of humanity, or the hip hop tradition, the stank face. I was thinking about your idea of, you know, the, like the things that were not allowed. Right? Mm. The, the O face is about as uh, earthy and, and extreme a facial expression as you can make, right? Also, you say one of the most beautiful and sacred moments that you can experience. But it's not something that, that conforms easily to, say, the aesthetics of power. Right, absolutely. You know, the dance reflects the cultural ideals. What does, what, and, you know, in, in some forms, like the dance can even be like the propaganda of an ideal, <laughs> like, how can we like perpetuate and represent through movement on a stage and revere individuals for their ability to represent these ideals, which exactly like you said, are ultimately getting away from the earth, representing, um, you know, sometimes they're like nymph-like, fairy-like, non-human, greater than human, but, you know, always away from the earth in terms of like how being on the toes or how far can you get from being rooted, um, you know, which is also what will 
taking away any of the this the symbolism it just is it's be beautiful and captivating because it's unlike what we see in everyday life and so it stands out when we when somebody can move their body in a way that is distinctly unlike things that we normally encounter it catches our attention whether that's someone balancing really proficiently on one hand doing some crazy tricking or like ballet like wow that is that is not an everyday sight <laughs> and it's it's captivating um but it yeah it is it has been about like getting away from the earth and in my growing up and in dance like it's really important that your face doesn't look like you're straining or you're working hard because as soon as you look like you're efforting or straining it's no longer beautiful and so if it, i'm as i move into other have moved into other movement experiences in my life you know whether it be like trying a martial arts thing or something where i really needed my strength and power if i'm afraid of showing effort in my face so how will that affect what i allow from my whole body right the face is such a direct representation of really what we're feeling and if we're, we have to like kind of like keep it soft and, and keep keep our <laughs> keep our face beautiful and it but it's not just people like me who grow up and dance that's the thing is that it's it extends to those who haven't danced and they feel like well i'm not a dancer because i don't look like that and i look like ah, this when i dance so i'm not a dancer <laughs> So you say martial arts, right? You know, when it comes to like that, that grimace, that that expression, all of that, that that capacity to tap into aggression, you need that, right? Mm -hmm. A beautific expression. I'm not going to look like an angel when I hit you as hard as I can. Um, but I that would be I, an interesting exercise. <laughs> <laughs> sure, um, but. It strikes me that it, that it goes deeper than that, than that, right? Like martial arts is a kind of a specific context, but the insight seems like it bleeds everywhere. Like if you're taught to hold your face in a specific way, you're literally cutting yourself off from motion, like, you know, reality, yes. right? If you, are, if you are trying to have sex and you have to have a perfect ballet face during sex, I'm just going to say, I don't think you're going to be as successful at having an orgasm. No, but absolutely. It, trying to, trying to um, fit ourselves into beauty standards or upholding them or thinking that we derive our value from them will inhibit you in all areas of life. Like you can't really access pleasure and range of experience, right? If when we're worried about how we look. You know, if you're if you're worried about how we look and our worry about how we look is fitting into the, the beauty standards that are that we live in. So um I, you know, I, I try to blend it ultimately, like as I said, people are drawn to me often because they think that what I do is beautiful, at least when I'm as the solo mover, rather than like my teaching in the classroom experience. They'll be drawn to me because they think what they do is beautiful, but it's very important to me to to not um to not place a value on, on like <laughs> upholding, like or not have, have people walk away thinking that they are more valuable if they are fitting into 
these aesthetics that I, I know how to transmit because I've, I've learned them. I know how to shape yourself in a way and have the right negative space and the right angle of your face and your leg that people will say, wow, that's really beautiful. I know how to do that and I know how to transmit it, but it's also very important to me that that's, that's not where people are putting the highest value and the highest value is on their experience of being able to take care of themselves, to land in their body and ultimately to, to feel safe in a room with other people, to connect with music. Um, those are, have to be a higher value for me. I think that's the perfect place to stop. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's 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 what you're 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 offering in some senses. You you have achieved the standard of beauty. You can present it, and I, I think there's you don't need to reject the value of it, but also to recognize that that value comes with costs. Yeah. And putting it as the number one thing, without recognizing those costs and giving people ways to to get outside them and to recover their own felt experience as primary. That's precisely the, the question that I had when everyone started praising you and my daughter. So cool. Mm -hmm. she, can, she can wear all the pretty dresses she wants. She can wear makeup. She can dance as long as she doesn't let it take out her center in her own body and felt experience. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you very much for- You're welcome. Welcome. Wonderful conversation. I look forward to future conversations. So uh, I, I'm Thank now you. like Rogan. I have a, I have a Jamie. Uh, Bobby, can you take us off live and we'll uh, go to. So let me just explain for everyone who may be watching this right now um, that, uh, that now we're going to do a Q&A. And this is just for uh, people who are on our podcast plus membership. So if you're interested in joining us for future conversations, once a month we're going to be doing these live and sticking around to answer questions from the audience. Um, folks who are in our online academy get access to it. We're also just doing a special things so you can check in uh, the description to get access to any of our upcoming calls. Um, and this is gonna be how we're gonna support this podcast. And in addition to being part of the conversation, you also get to do Q and A's that I'm gonna answer at the end of the month and have a dedicated set of forums around movement to discuss these things and kind of take that uh, discussion much deeper. So. If you're interested in that, hit the links um, and we will see you guys next time. Hey, you've reached the end of another Evolve Move Play podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, if you want to be involved in the conversation, please consider joining us in our new membership subscription so you can get access to question and answers with our live speakers once a month, question and answers with me once a month, and a dedicated forum to discuss everything going on in the podcast, as well as a general discussion of movement on our general movement forums. If you're interested in that, make sure to check out the link below, get signed up and join a part of our membership community. If you can't join our membership community right now, it's still always helpful if you can like, share and subscribe and even hit that bell and get notifications for upcoming Evolve Move Play podcasts. But adios for now and we'll see you next time. Thanks guys.